When the U.S. military decided it needed cultural expertise as much as smart bombs to prevail in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Pentagon's Counterinsurgency Field Manual offered a blueprint for mobilizing anthropologists. That's right, anthropologists for war. As a response, the network of concerned anthropologists issued their own counter-counter-insurgency manual, which not only critiques that strategy, but offers a blueprint for resistance. Well, my guests this morning are two members of the uh, Network of Concerned Anthropologists Steering Committee. They're also contributors to the Counter-Counter-Insurgency Manual, or Notes on Demilitarizing American Society. Uh, my first guest is uh, Hugh Gusterson. He's professor of anthropology and sociology at George Mason University. He's also the author of a number of books, including Nuclear Rights, that's R-I-T-E-S, published by University of California Press, and People of the Bomb uh, from Minnesota Press. And he writes a regular online column for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. We're also joined by David Price, who's Professor of Anthropology and Sociology at St. Martin's University. He's the author of Threatening Anthropology, McCarthyism, and the FBI's Surveillance of Activist Anthropologists at Duke University Press. Uh, and Anthropological Intelligence, the Deployment and Neglect of America Anthropology in the Second World War, also from Duke University. And uh, they both join us on the line. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Nice to be here, Jared. Oh, and I think we might have just lost... Uh, I'm speaking with you, correct? You're speaking with you. I think we might have just lost David Price. But uh, let's uh, proceed with you. I'm sorry about that. Uh, how are you this morning? I'm fine. <laughs> well, uh, why There's don't... There's no, no hope for retrieving David, huh? I, uh, I can put you on hold again if you want. We could try calling him back, but... Um, Your call. Well, let us, uh, for the sake of uh, continuity, let's just continue right now. And my apologies to David. We'll see if we can't get him back on. But uh, why don't we begin with a, a basic question, which is exactly why would the U.S. military uh, or the Pentagon have any interest in uh, anthropologists of all people? Well, anthropologists are the keepers of the keys of culture. And now that the uh, U.S. counterinsurgency campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan have got bogged down, uh, they've realized correctly to some degree that culture is a source of friction. Uh, and they're looking to, to the keepers of culture as the owners of the magic bullet, if you like. They think that if only they understood the culture of Afghans, especially and of Iraqis, then maybe they could uh, make the occupation finally work. So when the government talks about winning the hearts and minds, uh, are they suggesting that they're only able to do this with the assistance of anthropology? Well, I think they're concerned about a number of things. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an obvious example. In Iraq, a large number of Iraqi civilians tragically and unnecessarily died at checkpoints um, because... Uh, American soldiers didn't understand the rudiments of hand signs in Iraq. What we understand to mean stop, which is a very intuitive sign for us to mean stop, in Iraq means hello. So when Iraqis saw American soldiers holding up their, their hands in what we took to mean stop, 
they took that to mean, come on, and a lot of them got shot to death, complete families and so on. So one of the things the Americans are concerned about is just uh, understanding sort of the ABCs of the, the culture of the people that they're occupying to try and smooth away some of that kind of friction. But they're also interested in doing what they call human terrain mapping, a term I find kind of sinister. Um, they want to employ anthropologists to do these sort of sophisticated uh, geographical charts of where all the different tribes and clans live and so on. And the fantasy is that if only you understood the relationships between all those kinds of people, you could go and talk to them more effectively and get them to be on your side. Hmm. It's strange that uh, that an army or a military would invade... Uh, well, let's let's separate invading versus occupying because I think that there's a, a great an important distinction. Yeah, and there's a great quote in the introduction that says, uh, you know, that the military doesn't need anthropologists for an invasion, but they need them for an occupation. So, if you could uh, elaborate on that. Well, I think we have to partly understand this in terms of the change of personnel in the Pentagon since the invasion. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld, the, the Secretary of Defense, who was Secretary of Defense during the invasion, and the group of senior officers around him, believed very much in a sort of shock and awe strategy. They only thought about invasion itself, and they just assumed that the local people would either want to be liberated intrinsically, or else um, they would naturally gravitate towards American power, and there would be very little resistance. And there was a real hubris to that that strategy, which became increasingly clear as the U.S. got bogged down in Iraq from 2004 or 5 onwards. Um, the people around Robert Gates have a very different approach. Uh, General Petraeus himself actually is one of the, the key architects of this new cultural turn in American military policy. And they've realized that occupation is a very, very different kind of task from, uh, from invasion. And they've realized that they can't make occupation work without some sort of understanding not only of the ABCs of the local culture, but a much more profound understanding of how the different local communities relate to one another. I should add, I, I think they're on a fool's quest. I think even with that kind of cultural understanding, they still won't succeed. The surge is doomed to fail. Um, but they can certainly uh, have a better shot at it if they, they have a more culturally attuned approach to occupation. I want to remind listeners, they're in tune to KUCI in Irvine, 88.9 FM. This is Justice or Just Us. We're talking about uh, the Network of Concerned Anthropologists and the Counter-Counter-Insurgency Manual. We're speaking with uh, Professor Hugh. Is it Gusterson or Gusterson? Gusterson. Gusterson, and my apologies. Uh, we lost our other guest. We'll try to uh, get him, maybe have a part two and have him on next week. I, uh, I'm really sorry about the phone patch, but... Uh, in what ways uh, have anthropologists historically served the military? Because, you know, this is not something recent, is it? Mm -hmm. No, it isn't. Um, in World War II in particular, a lot of anthropologists uh, contributed to the war effort, by, by some estimates, more than half, and it was a very small discipline back in those days. Some of the things anthropologists did back then, uh, I don't have much problem with. Uh, other things are actually a, a source of great embarrassment to the profession. So to start with 
the latter category, the Japanese-American internment camps in this country were largely run by anthropologists. Uh, and that is a source of grave embarrassment to the discipline at this point. On the other hand, to give a much more benign example, Margaret Mead was sent to, to the UK to figure out why there was uh, some friction between American servicemen stationed in the UK and local British populations, uh, and found that if you explained local customs to American servicemen and had them behave a little more in tune with, with British mores, then thing, things seemed to go more smoothly. And then in between those two kinds of examples, you had uh, people in places like Burma um, trying to think of ways of inciting uh, insurgency against the Japanese occupation forces. Hmm. Now, we should probably back up a bit, actually, and just clarify for listeners uh, precisely the, the, the definition and the functions of, of an anthropologist. I mean, I'm sure most of our listeners were broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and uh, I'm sure most of our listeners are aware, but anthropology is the study of cultures and customs and, and, and so forth. That, that's right, and it's undergone a sea change in the last two or three decades. It used to predominantly be the the study of so-called primitive peoples, and you know, in the face of globalization, we're kind of running out of those people. Uh, increasingly, anthropologists do fieldwork either with uh, urbanized populations in the third world or in the United States as well. So it has become a very uh, different kind of, of discipline. And I think the people in the Pentagon who are interested in anthropology actually have not kept up with the changes in anthropology itself. And they think of anthropologists as sort of the custodians of tribes, uh, a term that anthropologists themselves don't use anymore. So they tend to have this very frozen in time sense of what Afghan culture is, is like. Uh, and often when they talk to anthropologists in, in the the flesh. They find us uh, frustrating to talk to because we tell them everything is much more complicated than they wanted us to, to, to say it was. Maybe I could back up to, to, to your last question and uh, say a little bit more about your question of how anthropologists have helped the military in the past. I talked about World War II, the, the so-called good war, uh, where many anthropologists were very happy to, to help the war effort. Um, the Vietnam War was a very different kind of story. During the Vietnam War, uh, the U.S. military did again reach out to anthropologists and ask if they could uh, could help out with counterinsurgency strategies in Southeast Asia. And there were a small number of anthropologists who were doing covert studies on behalf of the Pentagon. And when their names were revealed and the kind of research they were doing was revealed publicly, it caused complete uproar in the American Anthropological Association. Uh, and and it led to the writing of the very first ethics code, actually, in 1971, an ethics code that prohibited uh, most of those kinds of military consulting by anthropologists. And so there was a sort of breach between the anthropological community and the military uh, during and at the end of the Vietnam War, where anthropologists as a discipline largely repudiated uh, much of the work the military wanted anthropologists to do for them as a violation of our own ethics code. You know, so it seems that one of the, the things that keeps emerging in this is, you know, it's hard to think that the Pentagon would uh, turn to a, a discipline, whether it's, you know, psychology, certainly um, psychology has been in the news a lot because uh, there's a big debate in the APA about uh, interrogation and torture. Harsh, right, harsh interrogation and torture. Um, but, you know, it seems odd that uh, 
the, the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, would be interested in uh, disciplines that are contrarian by, by necessity, where you need this, this openness and this peer review process and this constant paradigm shifts and, and willingness to, um, you know, to recognize um, that the world is not black and white, but that it is, uh, you know, shades of gray and multifaceted. Uh, is the Pentagon and the Department of Defense, is the military looking for legitimization of what they've, their already devised blueprints from anthropology? Or do you think they genuinely want to understand cultures so that, I don't know, there are less casualties, there are less... I mean, certainly we, we believe, at least I believe, that the military doesn't want many casualties if they could avoid it. But, I mean, it, it almost seems that they're being disingenuous about their interest in anthropology. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. Well, of course, the Pentagon is not a single thing, right? It's a massive and very complicated uh, organization. There are some anthropologists working within the Pentagon, uh, who I think of as rogue anthropologists in a way, uh, who are entrepreneurs of some of this turn towards anthropology. Um, and I think they have a particular vision of remaking anthropology uh, as a more militarized discipline. And they've played a key role as entrepreneurs uh, of this military turn. Uh, and then there are people within the military who realize that uh, current counterinsurgency strategy isn't working. And if there are people who say that anthropologists might have a better idea, they're, they're willing to give it a shot. Um, and it, it, it's worse than what you say in terms of anthropologists always being interested in remaking the discipline. Uh, from the Pentagon's point of view, anthropologists are dubious partners, I, I would think. Anthropologists tend to be amongst the most liberal of uh, any academics in, in the university. And worse than that, people usually become anthropologists because they have a sort of visceral sympathy for the marginal and dispossessed peoples of the world and see it as an obligation in some sense to understand those people and advocate for them. So we're not obvious partners in the, uh, the task of military occupation of other peoples. And one of the reasons there's been so much resistance within anthropology um, to the Pentagon's cultural turn is that According to our ethics code, we have a sort of Hippocratic Oath obligation to do no harm to those we study. And it's very hard to square that central moral obligation in our discipline with enabling the occupation of, of those peoples. Well, and of course, the, uh, the basic tenets of academia, that there's openness and scrutiny and so forth. And right. when we were talking about you know, kind of um, how anthropology has served the military uh, historically, you know, particularly post-World War II, uh, the counter-counter-insurgency uh, manual discusses, you know, uh, you know top-secret dissertations and, uh, and, and things of the like, which just totally fly in the face. I mean, forget the ethics of, of research as in, you know, human subjects and so forth, just the basic, you know, openness of findings and uh you know some of the things that are that are mentioned in this book are, are quite amazing you know um was it uh, oceanographers um assisting the military in mapping the surface uh, uh the bottom of the ocean for submarines and then uh when people demanded what was it when people demanded that this knowledge be made public the military put out false maps is that what 
Well, the military didn't put out the false maps. They insisted that the academics and universities they had funded to do the underwater mapping actually um, mislead their readers in scientific journals about the maps. They insisted that they plot the data inaccurately so that if the Russians were reading American oceanographers' uh, journal articles, they would have a misleading understanding of the ocean floor. I mean, you can understand why they would want to mislead the Russians, but at the same time, all those oceanographers and geologists without security clearances were, were misled. Uh, I think I point out in that piece in the counter-counterinsurgency manual that if you make up data or you deliberately distort them, uh, usually you could lose your job. You could lose tenure in academia, but the Pentagon somehow turned that into a patriotic obligation. Well, and, and it's, I, it seems that there are two different themes going on. One is that uh, you know, anthropologists have to worry about contributing to uh, an unjust just uh, occupation, uh, <laughs> occupation in terms of a foreign country, and then of course, if they continue to breach, you know, basic uh, ethical guidelines, then they're also contributing to an unjust occupation. Occupation is in their profession. That's right. That's right. And uh, I think that's why there has been so much pushback from anthropology. I think your listeners might be particularly interested in hearing about a relatively new program that the Pentagon is trying to push called the Human Terrain System Program. Yes. So they've started to deploy all over Iraq and Afghanistan these human terrain teams. They're typically uh, five people or more. Uh, three of the five people are military officers, and two of them are embedded civilian social scientists, preferably anthropologists. Those people wear military uniforms, they have weapons training, and they often carry weapons. They travel around uh, in military Humvees with, uh, with military teams, and then they go and visit villages and try and interview people uh, in these villages to find out what's going on. Now, the American Anthropological Association has twice now issued very strongly worded statements condemning these teams and saying that anthropologists should not participate. That has not stopped 11 anthropologists from signing up for the teams. Uh, some people have suggested that the salaries of $300,000 a year uh, have tempted some people to, to, to do it despite uh, the official condemnation by the Anthropological Association. Uh, obviously, if you come from a discipline where your Hippocratic oath is that you do no harm to those you study, and you're traveling around in Humvees with military teams, it becomes really, really hard uh, to take control of the data you gather and be quite sure that that data will not be used to in some way harm the people that you've interviewed. The Anthropology Association uh, appointed a commission a year ago to investigate those teams, and the commission just issued a 72-page report. I wish David Price were here because he served on that commission. But a number of members of the commission were actually anthropologists who consult for the military and other venues. Nevertheless, the commission unanimously condemned these human terrain teams and expressed particular disquiet about what happens to the information that they gather, whether that information might be used for targeting of people. Hmm. Well, uh, let us turn a bit more to um, the term counterinsurgency, and, and hopefully we could have uh, Professor Price on next week to talk mm -hmm. particularly about uh, the counterinsurgency manual. The, the I was hoping to ask about the you know the PR campaign and of course the uh, the plagiarism. So uh, I will certainly try to have him on maybe to, to focus specifically on on that piece in, in the book. But um, let's make sure our listeners know uh, exactly what we're talking about when we talk about counterinsurgency, and then uh, maybe you could tell us how the network of concerned anthropologists formed. 
Well, what the military is talking about when they talk about counterinsurgency is um, increasingly, um, it's, it's sort of a mixture of what David Kilcullen, David Petraeus' special advisor, has called armed social work. So you go out and you build schools and clinics and bridges um, for villages, but that's all done through the military and by the military. So that's one component of it. That's the carrot component, if you like. And then the stick component is that you're doing close surveillance of the human terrain, trying to figure out where the Taliban is grouped, where they hang out, how they operate, so that you can go in there and you can uh, kill them either via drone or with uh, with soldiers on the on the ground. A lot of it involves smashing down people's doors in the middle of the night and searching uh, for suspected Taliban based on tips from local informers and that sort of stuff. Uh, if you imagine being an Afghan family, having your door smashed down in the middle of the night uh, by foreigners who don't speak your language, who are dressed sort of like armadillos with the night vision glasses and all the rest of it, you can see why it might create as much resentment as it does good in terms of, of finding insurgents and so on. Um, I think they want anthropologists to tell them how to use the carrot and the stick more sensitively and effectively. Um, and just to, to understand the lay of the cultural land that they're operating in. You know, I, I, I hate to bring in pop culture for a discussion like this, but uh, I was one Avatar. of the... I, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I was one of the, uh, the, the millions or billions who uh, was, was dragged kicking and screaming, I must say, to, to go see Avatar. I was um, a little bit pleasantly surprised. I, I thought it had a, a good message and it was a, 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 a so-so movie, but uh, did you see the parallel? And if so, tell our listeners about it. <laughs> it's parallel. It hit me like a... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, so in Avatar, you have uh, something that looks like the U.S. military, though it isn't called the U.S. military, that's trying to colonize another planet and uh, and dig up an extremely valuable mineral. But the problem is uh, that these primitive blue people who are very romantically attuned to the natural world uh, have a sacred tree sitting right on top of all that uh, precious mineral. And so they send in these people who they don't call anthropologists, but they sort of behave like anthropologists to talk to the natives. And the, the film suggests that the anthropologists are kind of naive. They believe that they can occupy a third role and mediate between the occupiers and the occupied, and in fact they're being ruthlessly manipulated and used by the military. And then it ends with the anthropologists sort of going native and helping to lead an uprising uh, against the, the forces of occupation. Um, there are there's one major respect in which I thought the film was very unrealistic in terms of what we know about occupations. None of the occupied people were collaborating with the occupying forces. And usually the first rule of counterinsurgency is that you look for people you can buy off and get to, to collaborate with you, right? Uh, the British colonialists always did this, the French did it, the Nazis did it, and now the Americans are doing it in uh, Iraq and, and Afghanistan. We didn't see that in the film. Um, and there's actually been a lot of debate about the film on anthropology listservs. It's been likened a lot to the Kevin Costner movie, Dances with Wolves. Right, Dances with Avatar. <laughs> right. Uh, and the critique that many anthropologists have of the film is that the uh, the primitives can't save themselves, of course. They, they have to wait for the white guy to go native and lead them. Which was my disgust with the movie, but... 
uh, I mean, it, it was it was what it was. But uh, but yeah, um, I, I also thought it was pr- particularly odd not to give plots away that uh, I guess the the female blue person, uh, Pandoran, just I mean, yeah, sh- she just accepted the quote unquote anthropologist character, if you will. Um, and, and, and yeah, but I, I think it, it does show the parallels of, uh, the military or the private contractors or whatever it might've been in, in the movie. Um, thinking, I mean, you had talked earlier about the carrot and the stick and, you know, building schools and building roads. There's a great line in, in the film where uh, one of the commanders said, I don't understand, we've, we've, we've built roads and we've, we've given them schools and they don't want to participate. They don't want to cooperate. And it's, you know, a very interesting parallel. Well, and what the film dramatizes very clearly is the impossible situation that the anthropologist figure can get put in with this double loyalty. Uh, and in the end, in the film, they have to, to choose sides. Your listeners might also be interested to know, by the way, that the Network of Concerned Anthropologists was founded about two years ago in response to these initiatives to militarize anthropologists. And it was founded around the instrument of a pledge. So a pledge was posted online uh, for anthropologists to sign, saying that they refused to engage in counterinsurgency work. And, you know, we're not a large profession. There's maybe 10,000 anthropologists in the U.S. Over 1,000 people have now signed that pledge, over 1,000 anthropologists, which is pretty remarkable. Well, tell our listeners about the counter counter insurgency manual. And I guess you'll have to say a little bit about uh, the, the counter insurgency manual. And then uh, where did the idea come from to put out uh, a, a counter counter insurgency manual? Well, the idea for the counter-counterinsurgency manual was a direct response to uh, the counterinsurgency manual itself, uh, which was, was put out by the U.S. military as the first rewrite of counterinsurgency docu- doctrine in many decades. Uh, there are some anthropologists who helped to work on the counterinsurgency manual for the Pentagon. And uh, Chapter 3, I think it is, in particular, talks about the central role of understanding culture in effective counterinsurgency. Uh, and so the group of 11 of us who founded the Network of Concerned Anthropologists were disgusted by the counterinsurgency manual on a number of levels. First of all, as David Price showed in his own work, parts of it were plagiarized, so it violated academic norms of of good behavior. Um, The representation of anthropology in there is very crude and very old-fashioned. And we were just disgusted to see our discipline, which has usually been about advocating for the marginal, being turned the other way around uh, as an instrument for oppressing and occupying the marginal. So um, we put out this uh, small little volume. It's about uh, it's large print, small pages, 190 pages or so. Uh, no footnotes, so easy to read, put out by Prickly Paradigm Press. And it looks at a number of different issues. It looks at the issue of plagiarism in the counterinsurgency manual itself. Uh, there's an interesting chapter on how the counterinsurgency manual presents itself as being very radical, but is in fact all about the very reactionary project of occupying other peoples. I have a chapter in there about what happens to disciplines when they accept large amounts of military funding. And I look at physics, political science, psychology, and communications in particular, and you see a very common pattern. The disciplines grow enormously thanks to military funding. They can train a lot more graduate students. They can hire a lot more faculty. But if you look at the kinds of research that gets funded, It's very, very narrow. So if you look at physics, when it accepted massive military funding during and after World War II, 
it, it grew uh, as an infrastructure enormously, but the number of problems that physicists were looking at actually shrank. And so what you see in the university when a discipline agrees to be militarized is that it, it grows, it gets more resources, but the kinds of problems it gets interested in narrow. And you see this marginalization of critical liberal to leftist voices within these disciplines. And so many of us are very afraid that this could be what is about to happen to anthropology. And we want to protect anthropology from that kind of future. And now uh, we're just about out of time, but I want to get in a couple last questions. Are there members of the network of concerned anthropologists that maybe support either the occupation of Iraq or Afghanistan, but simply object to the use of anthropology to do it. I mean, could not a critic say, well, these are just people who are against the war and occupation in general, and they're using this as an avenue? Or is it, is it easy, or can you separate the, the academic argument from your, your broader political perspective? I think the 11 people who founded the network are against both wars and both occupations. If you define a member as someone who signed our pledge, that would be right. over a thousand anthropologists. A, su- a supporter, uh, I should say. Yeah. Um, we don't have membership dues or anything. Right. Um, I'm sure that many of those people supported Afghanistan, but not Iraq. Now, uh, some of them may have changed their minds about Afghanistan since the original uh, attack. Um, But I I know that there were people who supported uh, the U.S. assault on Afghanistan, but thought that Iraq was misguided. Um, But we also have a number of people who support us uh, purely on grounds of professional ethics. You know, they think that what anthropologists are being asked to do in those two theaters of war is a grave danger to the integrity of the discipline. And we're a broad church. You know, we don't have a sort of ideology litmus test. As long as you're willing to sign uh, the pledge saying that anthropologists themselves shouldn't undertake these kinds of counterinsurgency um, tactics, then you're a supporter as far as we're concerned. And actually, one of the 11 founders is a former U.S. military officer. Mm. Um, so it's not like we're all rabid foaming at the mouth anti-militarists. Hmm. Finally, what could uh, listeners do if uh, they want to either sign the pledge or if they're concerned that maybe their discipline is... Uh, w- well, obviously, the first thing to do would be to buy the counter-counterinsurgency <laughs> manual. Uh, and none of the royalties go to us. They all go to uh, Iraq veterans against the war and to the Network of Concerned Anthropologists. If they Google Network of Concerned Anthropologists, uh, our pledge will come up online, and they can uh, sign it, and they can see other things uh, on our website. Um, but more generally, I, I think sort of the next deadline we have to think about in terms of the political calendar is July 2011. President Obama has set in concrete the surge that he's uh, mistakenly decided to do. Uh, but he said that come July 2011, the U.S. will start to withdraw from Afghanistan. And it's very unclear what he means by that. Does he mean that the U.S. will withdraw 100 troops? And that will mean that we've started to withdraw, but that the the tail end of withdrawal will stretch over many years or even decades? Or does he mean something much, much more substantial? And I think it's really important that people who care about this issue start now to put as much pressure as they can on the White House to say that it was a mistake to do the surge, that the... uh, 
withdrawal that begins in July 2011 should be real and substantial. And my own analysis as a professional anthropologist is that the more U.S. military people you put in Afghanistan, the more casualties there will be on both sides. You just cannot stop those people from uh, wittingly or unwittingly committing atrocities that provoke resistance. Um, so the people in the military seem to believe that there's a sort of physics to this where if you put more force from our side on the other side, it will reduce the insurgency coming from the other side. And they've got it fundamentally wrong. The more U.S. military personnel there are in Afghanistan, the more resistance there will be, not the less. And, okay, maybe they can damp things down a little bit in one province, in Helmand province, say, but the Taliban will just move somewhere else and you'll get more insurgency elsewhere. So things are not going to get better over the next year. They're going to get worse. And the military is going to go back to Obama and ask for more troops. And it's really important that it becomes clear that there's preponderance of public opinion against that, and that Obama has to have meaningful demobilization. It is the Counter-Counterinsurgency Manual or Notes on Demilitarizing American Society from Prickly Paradigm Press. Proceeds go to support Iraq Veterans Against the War, a great organization. We've had them on this program many a time, and I've brought them to my classes to uh, speak to students. So uh, that was certainly something I was happy to read about. Um, you could check it out at Prickly Paradigm Press and... Uh, Professor Gustafson, I want to thank you so much for joining us this morning, and uh, we will definitely try to get uh, David Price on next week, so uh, do try to tune in where he can talk more about the, uh, the counterinsurgency manual and uh, the plagiarism aspects of it and kind of PR aspects that we didn't really get to talk about today, but I want to thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Jared. Take care.